you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and crack them open. And we're going to be in the New Testament, in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. So in the New Testament, you have Matthew, you have Mark, and then you have Luke. If you hit John, you've gone too far. And again, go back all the way to the beginning of your Bibles if you want to use the table of contents. And it's perfectly okay to, to utilize that if you want to. And while you're getting there, I'm going to continue. I'm going to pick up right where we left off in this story in Daniel. In verse 34 of chapter 4, it says, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. If you remember, where we left off this morning was, for seven years he's been in the wilderness, living like a wild beast. And then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. It's becoming a pattern now where He honors and glorifies God, but still we aren't seeing any evidence of repentance. Still we aren't seeing any evidence of faith and trust that's being put in the God that He is proclaiming. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases. With the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and my splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble And now at this time, Nebuchadnezzar has a son, a son named Belshazzar. And Belshazzar, during the seven years that, that Nebuchadnezzar is living in the wilderness as a wild beast, Belshazzar takes the throne. He assumes the throne from his father. And starting in chapter 5, we pick up, it says, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. And while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They mocked the God of Jerusalem with the things that, they, that his father had pillaged from that temple. And they used them instead to offer glory and worship to these false idols that they had constructed. And then in verse 5, it says, Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace, the king watched the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom." Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. And so King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. 
and his nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your, king, your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magician, magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind in knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing on the wall means. And so the king calls for Daniel. And Daniel comes, and he says, Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. And because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and the people of every language dreaded and feared him. Verse 22, he says, But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temples brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. And therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. There were three words, and the words Daniel interpreted to mean this. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And thirdly, your kingdom is divided and will be given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And that very night... Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62, just as, as Daniel had foretold. And then this is where it gets a little sticky for him. In chapter 6, it says, It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. And now Daniel so extinguished himself, sorry, distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to, to set him over the entire kingdom. And at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption. They could find no compromise in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. And finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. You see, they know if we want to catch him because they are prideful and they're seeing his success and he's seeing the favor that he has attained in the king's eyes and they are jealous of it and they are prideful for it and they're saying the only way that we're going to be able to catch this guy in a trap is if we offer him the option of compromise. 
the only way that we'll be able to get him is if we do this. We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. The one thing that he fears over anything else in this world, he fears no man, he fears no beast, but he fears his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during, during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. And now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Going back to our first evening here, it's because he had decided ahead of time he had made up his mind ahead of time. When calamity arises, when life gets flipped upside down, I know what I am called to do. I know what I will do. I know how I will respond because I have a calling. Because my faith and my trust remains firm in the one who I know to be trustworthy. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him. About his royal decree, did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? And the king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. And then they said to the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you your majesty, or to the decree that you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. And when the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. And then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issued can be changed. We got him. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and they threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him and he could not sleep. And at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near to the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? And Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. And the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And at the king's command, 
the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Yuck. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He rescues and he saves. All of Daniel's actions that we have seen up to this point, and, the, and at this point, by the way, by the time that he was thrown into the, into the lion's den, this is toward the end of his natural life. This is toward the end of the time where he's recounting these stories. He's recounting captivity out of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem, the pillaging of the, of the temple in Jerusalem. And he's recounting being replaced, being taken almost a thousand miles away from what was familiar to him. He's telling these stories towards the end of his life. And there's different historians who, who surmise that he was maybe 70, possibly 80 years old. Because he's lived at least 70 years in exile in Babylon. And all of Daniel's actions were a reflection of his faithfulness and wholehearted devotion to God. He lived a life of surrender and a life of repentance and always responded to any situation, to any condition, to any life change with surrender and praise. Not surrender to mankind, not surrender to kings, not surrender to decrees. In the midst of those things, he always turned to praise of the one who he knew was worthy of his praise. What does it look like for us to stand resilient in our faith in the midst of opposition? Because when you choose to live for the God of the Bible, don't be surprised when you come up against opposition. In the life of Daniel, we get a glimpse of how to do this. In the life of Daniel, we see an example of what it looks like to live uncompromisingly. Uncompr Is that a word, teachers? Uncompromisingly? Yep, all right. I got approval on it. It works. Without compromise, we'll just say that. To live a life without compromise. We get a glimpse of what that looks like. We get a glimpse of what absolute obedience looks like. We get a glimpse of, remember, as faithful as he is to God, we can continue to see God's faithfulness and sovereignty in his life. Not because he was kept safe all the time. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, put your hope and your trust in me and I will keep you safe. Nowhere in the Bible does it promise, put your hope and trust in me and I will make you happy. I will make you secure. Why? Because God's highest calling for you is not a sense of security in this world. God's highest calling for you is not a sense of comfort in this world. God's highest calling for you is not a sense of happiness in this world. Why? Because this world is not your home. Because you were not created for this world. 
His highest calling for your life is not comfort and happiness. God's highest calling for your life has always been and will always be holiness. That's what it's all about. The Greek word, agios, to be set apart, to live differently. And here, we see examples of what it looks like to live agios, set apart, different, stand out and stand firm. Daniel was planted in holiness. We get a glimpse of what that looks like and we get a glimpse even of the one who's going to be introduced to the narrative hundreds of years later in the life of Jesus. Why? Because Daniel understood that the most significant place he could be, we've talked about this, the most significant place that he could ever be in life was at the center of God's will. That's not the safest, not the most secure, certainly not the most comfortable place to be, but it will always be the most significant place to be. Jesus comes onto the scene and for the entirety of his life and ministry, he is aligned with the spirit and he is at the very center of God's will, but remember where it leads him. Daniel understood what it meant to refuse to compromise. And then when Jesus comes onto the scene, we now have a perfect example of what that looks like. All throughout the Old Testament of the Bible, we have these histories and we have these like heavy hitters of the faith. And Daniel is certainly one of them. We look at characters like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We have all these different characters all throughout the Old Testament that we can look at and we can say, wow, what a man of faith. Wow, what a woman of faith. And they are good examples, but they are not perfect examples. They are far from perfect examples. But when Jesus comes onto the scene, now we have a perfect example of what this looks like. Now we have a perfect example of what it looks like without any compromise. Now we have a perfect example of what it looks like to be tempted, but not sin. And we need to understand that there is a distinct difference between temptation and sin. Temptation in and of itself you will inevitably face every single day of your life. Every day, you will be tempted to serve yourself. Every day, you will be tempted to choose something or someone over God. Every day, you will be tempted to place something in the place of what must remain ultimate in your life. To make something else the ultimate thing in your life. You will be tempted to do so, but it is not sinful to be tempted. Here's how you know. Jesus was tempted. Time and time again, Jesus was tempted, but he was without sin. And there was a reason for that, and there's purpose, and there are implications of that. He was without sin, and it is this fact that made him the perfect and necessary sacrifice for us. Have you guys ever heard the word covenant? 
covenant, it's probably, it's not really a word that we throw around anymore, but it's, it's essentially, it, it's not even a contract. You've heard of like a contract. If you have a contract agreement, you sign your name on the line and it means we're entering into this contract agreement where you've hopefully read the agreements. You never read the agreements. You just sign on the, on the dotted line. It's like all the, you know, like the user agreements that you get from Apple that nobody reads and you're just like, you click the button and you sign it and it's like, okay, that's a contractual agreement. You can have a business contract. You can have a health contract. You can have waivers that you sign different contract agreements where you're saying, hey, I'm signing my, not, my, my name here. It means I agree with the conditions of this contract and I'm not going to back out of it. But in the Old Testament times, ancient civilizations, we had covenants. So much more than merely a contract that you would walk into. So let's say, uh, let's ha have an example. What's your name? Uh, Seth. Seth, here, come on, come on up here. We're going to enter into a covenant together, all right? Yeah. Give it up for Seth. So Seth and I, this is during ancient, so this is Old Testament times. We're entering into covenant together. Let's say we wanted to go into business together, right? You're the, you seem like the type of guy I really want to go into business with, all right? This is going to go really well. So we're going to enter into business together. And in order to, to make sure that I'm not going to be backing out of the agreements of, of the conditions of this contract, of this covenant that we're going to walk into, and to make sure that you're not going to walk out of that, um, we need to kind of set an example of what's going to happen if we do that. So we have an agreement and we've agreed upon these certain terms and here's the different terms of here's what the partnership is going to look like. Here's what the business is going to look like. Here's what we're going to do. All right. And now you have agreed and I have agreed and we're ready to walk into covenant together. And so what we do is we go out and we get a fatted calf or we get a bull. So we get a bull that is without blemish, that is perfectly physically healthy. And we bring it right here, this big, beautiful, perfectly healthy bull. All right? And then, don't name it, don't get attached to it, because we slit its throat. Uh, we kill it. And then once it's dead, we take it a step further, and we cut it in half. We cut the bull in half, and we separate the two halves like this. And then... Take my hand. Rant. Nope, other one. Like this. We walk, you and I walk together in between the two pieces of the severed bowl. And the idea is what we would do is we would gather around witnesses so that you could all bear witness to the covenant that we just walked into. And essentially what we are agreeing on is, hey, if either one of us backs out of the agreement, sorry, I spat on you a little bit. Oh, okay. Uh, if either one of us backs out of this covenant agreement, may we become just like this bull that has been cut in half that we just walked through. Exactly. That's the face that, should, that you should make. Go ahead and take a seat. Thank you, Seth. We'll, we'll iron out the details of our agreement later. But that's what it looks like to walk into covenant with someone. There was blood involved. There was death involved. And the agreement was, the understanding was, hey, if either of us backs out of this or dishonors the covenant in any way, may we become just like this dead bull that has been cut in half. That's what a covenant was. To be a Christian is to realize that in our sin, we have been separated from God's presence. 
We have broken the covenant that we have been in with him. We are separated from his presence, and we deserve nothing but God's wrath. A sin, as we talked about this morning, is any act, any word, or any thought that breaks a command or instruction from God. Our sin may affect those around us or even be directed at someone in particular, but we need to see that all sin is primarily against God. And it's important to understand this because as we said this morning, we will never know how glorious the cross is. We will never fully understand and appreciate the implications of Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross until we understand how serious sin is. A resilient follower of Jesus, much like Daniel was a resilient follower of God, knows that above all else, we have been saved by grace. And it's through faith. And the only appropriate response to this gift is complete surrender to God. Complete surrender to God. It's not a one foot in, one foot out. It's not this gray area of compromise of, I, under, I understand the commands that God has. Some of them I'll choose to obey. Why? Because we want to live in compromise because compromise is easier and compromise is more comfortable for us. God, I'll give you a little bit of my life, but it seems kind of ridiculous to give you all of it. Seems kind of uncomfortable to give you all of it. So instead, I'm going to compartmentalize this. But the reality is God has no interest in being compartmentalized into nothing more than a portion of your life. It's all or nothing. It is unity with him or it is disunity and separation from him. Those are the only options. Regardless of your intentions, Regardless of your deeds, it is by grace and through faith that you have been saved. And the only appropriate response that we have to this is complete surrender to him. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says this. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understandings. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. It doesn't, even, it doesn't say trust in the Lord with some of your heart. Trust in the Lord with a portion of your heart. It doesn't even say trust in the Lord with most of your heart most of the time. 99% of the, of the time, it says trust in the Lord with all of your heart. There's a completion to that. There's a complete sense of abandonment and surrender in that moment in all your ways submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. The gospel message is a call for every one of us to die. To die to sin and to die to self. And to live with unshakable trust in Christ. Choosing to follow his word even when it brings us into clear confrontation with culture. What have we seen time and time again in the book of Daniel? We've seen men who choose to follow God's word, even when it brings them into clear confrontation with culture. You can identify with that. You can relate with that. I hope you can't relate to what it feels like to be 
you know, for somebody to say, I'm going to throw you in the furnace uh, or thrown into a lion's den. And I hope you never experience that. But you know what it feels like to have to follow his word even when it brings us into clear confrontation with culture. A culture that not only misunderstands, but a culture that is in very direct opposition to the word of God. To be a Christian is to be loved by God. To be a Christian is to be pursued by God and found by God. To be a Christian is to realize that in your sin, you were separated from God's presence and you deserved nothing but God's wrath. You deserve nothing but the wrath of God because of your sin. Yet, despite your darkness and in your deadness, his light shone on you and his voice spoke to you, inviting you to follow him. His majesty, his sovereignty captivated your soul. His mercy covered your sin. And by his death, you have been brought to life. The story of Jesus on the cross is not a story of Jesus coming and fixing you. The purpose of Jesus' ministry was to teach and was to reveal the glory of God. And the glory of God is evident in the way that you are made complete in Jesus. Jesus did not come to fix what is broken. Jesus came to take what was dead and bring it back to life. Jesus said during his ministry, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The first century Christians, you know what they were referred to as? They were called people of the way. Why? Because Jesus came and during his ministry, he said, I am the way. I am the way to live. I am the way to the Father. In fact, I am the only way to the Father. We also find him saying, I am the resurrection. So we see that it's evident that the resurrection was not an event, it was a person. It was so much more than just a single event. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I have resurrection power. If you have access to me, if you have me, you are not just fixed in your brokenness. We don't just slap duct tape over you and hope for the best. Jesus takes what is dead and he brings it back to life. And when you are brought to life, you are given new identity. Because when you are dead in your sin, you are identified by your sin. It's a part of who you are because it's what you worship, because it's what you glorify. And your life is going to be a reflection and a depiction and a window and an insight into what you think is worthy of your worship. But when Jesus comes along and you accept that gift of grace that is undeserved to you, he not only gives you new life, he gives you new identity with that. You have been offered a new name. You have been offered a new identity in him. He offers you a new identity, his identity, no longer separated from God, but now united with God. 
No longer stained by sin, but now clean from sin. No longer slaves to our sin, but now free. And no longer guilty before God as judge, but now loved by God as father. The entire relationship dynamic has shifted now. You no longer have a relationship dynamic of sinner and judge. It is now child of God and father. You are no longer deserving of eternal death, never to grasp all that God has created us to be, but now having eternal life. You are experiencing more and more exactly who God has created you to be. You have been given identity. No longer identity of sinner. But he calls you by name and he calls you beloved. No one in this world has the authority or the sovereignty to tell you who you are. Nobody has the authority and the sovereignty to tell you what your purpose and your calling is. Anytime we have a product that's commonly used, I have an iPad up here. Most of you probably have iPhones or smartphones in, in, in some capacity. If, you, if you're looking at like a smartphone, uh, think about the first time you ever, you ever bought a, a, a smartphone. I remember the very first like, uh, smartphone I had. I had a Sam, Samsung Galaxy. I know, boo. Um, now I have iPhones, so it's okay. I'm saved. Um, but I had this Samsung Galaxy, and it had like all the touchscreens and all the stuff. I had just moved back to the States from Guatemala, uh, where they didn't have those things. And now I have something brand new, and I didn't know how to use it. And so what was the most useful thing that I could do at that time? I could refer back to the user manual. Why? Because the ones who had created the phone, they had a manual, and, they, and, and the manual, you could refer to the manual, and it would say, this is the purpose that this is meant to serve. This is how you are meant to use this thing. You go back to the manufacturer. Who's going to be able to determine the value, the worth of that thing, and tell you the purpose of the thing? It's the one who made it. And in the same way, you have purpose and you have calling and you are called by name and you are given instruction directly from the one who created you. And you have been offered a new identity, no longer the names and the labels that you've been given by friends, by peers, by family, by siblings, by exes. You are no longer rooted in the identity of sinner and broken and too far gone and lost cause. You are offered a new identity, and it's an identity in Jesus as a son and as a daughter of the Most High King. And I can tell you, this isn't something that I could conceptualize fully. It wasn't until I had my first son. My first son was born in, in 2020. Uh, his name's Ryland Riot, um, and he fits the name for sure. And this kid has been my pride and joy. He th turned three years old this year. 
And both of his parents, so he's, he's got a double whammy, all right? It's, it's hard enough growing up with, like, one parent as a pastor. Both of his parents are a pastor, so please pray for my son, all right? Um, he's going to be all, all sorts of screwed up. Uh, but he's essentially growing up in the church. So his, uh, so his mother, my wife, and I, we both work in, in the church at North Coast down in San Diego. We're very much involved. There's a lot of different teams that she oversees, um, and, and, and there's, there's a lot of, so he spends a lot of time in the church, essentially. But there's this boldness about him. Every time he walks into that church, it's such a familiar and comfortable place from him, for him. He kind of walks with like, he gets a little, a little swagger when he's like walking through the church. Because he belongs there. And he knows he belongs there. He's got a little, a little bit of swagger and a little bit of confidence. And it's interesting watching, you can watch him walk through the hallway and people are trying to distract him, say, hi, Ryland, and engage with him and give him high fives and all this, and just like be friendly and encounter him in this space. But sometimes he has this focus about him where he completely shuts out all the other distractions and he doesn't even like, he doesn't say hello, he doesn't, and not because he's mean, he's just, he's a man on a mission. He's a very short man on a mission, all right? He's got somewhere to go. He's got someone to see. And it's oftentimes on a Sunday, I'll find myself in the lobby because I'm, a, I'm an extrovert, surprise. Uh, I love hanging out with people. I love engaging with people. And so uh, I love welcoming new people and talking. I have to talk with parents of high schoolers a lot. Hopefully it's a good conversation that we're having. I'd like to hang out with my students um, during the summer. I have a lot of students who have graduated who are coming and they're visiting and I'm getting caught up uh, with their lives and what they're doing. And I'll see my son. And my son is walking straight to me. And in that moment, I could be in the middle of a conversation with someone. It doesn't matter who that person is. It doesn't matter who I'm doing. It doesn't matter what I'm holding. Everything gets put down. Everything gets put on hold. So I can see my son. And he walks to me with a boldness and a confidence because he's not living for the approval of anyone else in that entire building. We could have 1,100 people in that building who all want his attention. I know because it's happened before. He's very popular. <laughs> that building could be filled with people who want his attention and want his affection. But he isn't living for the approval or the affection of anyone in that building except for mine. He just wants his dad. And in that moment, I place everything down and I pick him up. And he knows that he's safe. And he knows that he's secure. And he knows that he is loved. And he knows I want him to grow up with the knowledge and the understanding and the confidence that there is nothing he can ever do that will ever separate him from that love that I have for him. He can be separated from my presence, but he will never be separated from my love. I love that kid, that stinking kid. I love him. I pursue him. I seek him out, and I find him. And he walks 
boldly through life. He walks into any room like he owns it because he knows beyond the shadow of the doubt that he has a father who loves him. He has a father who calls him by name, who pursues him and finds him and wants nothing more than to spend time with him. You have a father. I don't know what your family situation is like at home. But I can't let you leave this space tonight without the assurance, without being absolutely sure that you have a heavenly father who is sovereign, who is Lord over everything who spoke the universe into existence and then he created you and he calls you by name. And when we enter into his presence in prayer, there's pictures of this in Revelation where there's, there's a, uh, there are heavenly hosts that are singing and covering him with praise and worship. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. But when you enter into his presence in prayer, the angels and the heavenly hosts separate God stops in that moment and says, this one's mine. That one's mine. And he calls you by name. Not the name that you've been given by your friends. Not the names and labels that you've been given by people who have been slighted by you. People who have sinned against you and people that you have sinned against. The one who created you calls you by name. You have a heavenly father who wants to be reunited with you. But you've been living a life of compromise. Because it's easier for us to be living for the approval and the attention and the affection of others. And so we place other people and other things in this elevated space where only God should be. And God is reminding us throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, in his word where his glory is revealed, he's saying, set your eyes on me. Don't lose focus. Don't be distracted by the things of this world because the things of this world will lead you astray and leave you wanting and needing more. This world will offer you temporary things. This world will offer you watered-down versions of what only I can offer you. He loves you, and he invites you into loving relationship with him, but as we already discussed, love is meaningless if there is no choice. There is power in love only because there is a choice to reject. You have a choice to make. And it's not a one foot in, one foot out. You're in or you're out. It's all or it's nothing. It's not a question, again, of whether you want hell or heaven. It's a question of do you want God? 
Because it starts with obedience and a daily obedience that you have been called to. But sin entered the equation. And something has to be done about sin because as we've already talked about, sin separates you from his presence. Because what is perfect and what is imperfect, what is holy and what is unholy cannot occupy the same space. But there is nothing that we can do to reconcile, to close this gap. And so God, because he loves you and from his abundant love for you, he sent his son instead to stand in the gap. The one who was blameless, the one who was without sin, was abused was spat upon, was whipped, was beaten, was tortured, was tormented, was cast out, was given a cross to carry to the place where he would be put to death. And as he was walking, he was tripped, he was flogged, he was mocked by the crowds, until he came up to a place, the place of the skull. And it's here that there's a part of a story that we find in Luke. Remember way back in the beginning where I said to turn to Luke? Luke chapter 23. I want to give you maybe a different perspective on the choice that you have when you are offered the gospel story. Luke chapter 23, verse 32, it says this. It says, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him and they said he saved others let him save himself if he is God's Messiah the chosen one and then the soldiers also came up and mocked him and they offered him wine vinegar and said if you are the king of the Jews save yourself and there was written a notice above him which read this is the king of the Jews they're making a mockery of him and then one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. He's being bitingly sarcastic with his final breaths because this is a man, this is a criminal who is being crucified. He's dying and he's using his final breaths to criticize and to mock Jesus Aren't you the king of the Jews? Aren't you the Messiah? If you are who you say you are, get down, save yourself, and save us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. In that moment, the criminal receives the gospel message. I am being punished justly for my sins. I deserve this death that I am suffering. But he is blameless and without sin. This man has done nothing wrong. But then thirdly, there's a realization 
in that moment, he realizes this is the only one who is mighty to save. Not just my life, but my eternity. And he says this. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This scene on the cross, I think we miss it sometimes. On either side of Jesus, you have criminals who are being crucified. A brutal, horrible death. Because according to the laws of the land, they deserved it. They are being crucified for their sins. And one of the criminals chooses to use his final breath to mock Jesus. But the other criminal has a completely different reaction and response. And he says, don't you see? We're being crucified justly. We are being punished justly. We deserve death because of our sin. However, this man is without sin. And in fact, because he was, is without sin, this is the only man who is worthy to save. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And when we read the story, when we look at the story, it's not a question as to whether or not you are one of those criminals. You are. If you're going to put yourself into this story, you're definitely one of the criminals who is being justly crucified for your sin. The question I want you to answer tonight is, when presented with the gospel message, which criminal are you? There's two different responses that you can have to the gospel message. There are two different responses that you can have to the grace and the forgiveness that has been offered to you, not because you are good, but because he is good. You can receive and reciprocate, or you can make a mockery of it. There is no middle ground. When it comes to following Jesus, when it comes to committing your life to him, when it comes to responding to the call of salvation, because every single one of you has been called to two things. You have been called to salvation, and you have been called to sanctification. You have been called to be saved, and you have been called to become more like the one who saved you. And you have a choice to make, not just tonight, but every day from here forward. Here's what I want to do to end the evening. I want to invite the staff up, the school staff. So if you're on staff or faculty, if you're one of the leaders that came up uh, in, with the school, I want you to come up to the stage. Come on, come on. And you can stand right in front of the right in front of the stairs right there. The reason I want them to be here is because you were created for community and you were created for relationship. You were created from relationship and you were created for community and relationship with your creator, but also with others. You're called into relationship with him, but also into relationship with the church. This is your church. Seated around you right here, this is the church. The church has never had anything to do with four walls and a ceiling above our heads. It's you. 
there's a personhood to it and a personality to it and a nature to it. And you have a calling to be a part of that church. And these, some of them staff, some of them here voluntarily, these are the ones who are here with you this week, who have given their time and their resources, who have sacrificed to be here with you. Because they know what it means and what it feels like to be loved by a heavenly father. And the most important thing that they want for you above any, any amount of your education is for you to simply have that understanding. You have a heavenly father who loves you, who is calling you home to him. And so what I want everyone in here to do is I want you to bow your heads. And I'm not going to lead you in prayer right now, but I'm simply going to offer you a choice. And it's not a choice that I am giving to you. It's simply a choice that we read about in God's word. Here's what I want you to consider. Going back to the story of the two thieves that are being crucified along Jesus, it's not a question as to whether or not you are one of those thieves. The question is, which one are you? You have been given a choice from an almighty, sovereign, and loving God who has extended forgiveness. Why? Because sin has separated you from his presence. Sin has completely separated you from his presence. It's any act, word, or thought that breaks a command or instruction from God. But to be a Christian is to be loved and pursued and found by him. Jesus is offering you a new identity in your salvation. He's offering you his identity, no longer separated from God, but now united with God. No longer stained by sin, but now clean from sin. No longer slaves, but now free. No longer guilty before God as judge, but now loved by God as a father. You are no longer deserving of eternal death, never to grasp all that God created you to be, but now having eternal life, experiencing more and more exactly who God has created you to be. You have a choice that you don't just get to make tonight, but instead I want you to consider this as a commitment. If you've never made that commitment before or if you've made that uh, commitment before but hadn't had the layers of people looking out for you and keeping you accountable to that choice, I'm not going to lead you in any sort of prayer to respond to. I simply want to set you up and prepare you to walk into conversation with these leaders and faculty. I want you to, con- to continue the conversation with the ones who are gonna go back down the mountain with you and help you navigate high school life and help you navigate spiritual life and keep you accountable If you want that accountability from this staff, from these faculty who love you, I simply want you to look up and make eye contact with any of them so that they can see you, so they can acknowledge you, and so that from this day forward, they can say, I remember that night. Do you remember when you made that decision? 
I'm keeping you accountable. And as you're looking up and making eye contact with them, this is your commitment to them, but this is also the faculty and staff's commitment to you to keep you accountable, to remind you of who you are and whose you are this night and every night for as long as they are in your lives. Thank you. You can go ahead and bow your heads again. I'm going to pray for us. God, we thank you for this group of students, for this team of staff and faculty who have been up here spending a week not just having fun together and, and, and engaging in worship with one another, but diving into your word and just being reminded through the examples of Daniel, of Shadrach, of Meshach, and Abednego, what it looks like to stand resilient in our faith in the midst of calamity, in the midst of a culture that is very much in our opposition. God, tonight, some of these students, they know who they are. They need to offer up and surrender their lives to you, and that can only begin with repentance. That can only begin with obedience. We thank you for the relationships that they're able to have with each of these staff, and from this night forward, we, may we be able to walk in accountability with one another. May you continue to guide and bless the conversations that need to be had. There is sin that needs to be brought out of the darkness and into the light. There are walks of disobedience that need to end tonight and walks of obedience that need to begin with a single step. May you guide those steps. It's in your name we pray tonight. Amen.